Well, hello. I'm Lainey, also known as Electro Girl, and I'm an advocate for empowering people to get back in the driver's seat of their diagnosis. See, I was diagnosed with epilepsy 30 years ago and basically was never satisfied with hearing from a doctor that pharmaceuticals would be the only approach to controlling my seizures. I just wasn't going to take it. Out of my way, mortal. So I committed many, many years to researching and finding an answer outside of the Western medicine approach to find a more holistic approach in managing and treating my epilepsy and the seizures. The Love Your Diagnosis podcast is a show about exactly that. Each week, we will be looking into the life of someone who has been diagnosed with a condition or illness and has succeeded in managing their diagnosis both in and outside of Western medicine. To start off, we will look at the Western medicine prognosis and approach to dealing with their diagnosis inside the square. Then, we'll dip our toes a little deeper into their story where we talk about other empowering modalities that worked for those people outside of that square. Basically, what put them back in the driver's seat of their diagnosis. So hang around with me while we explore living in and outside the medical square when it comes to loving your diagnosis. Hello, today on Loving Your Diagnosis, I talked to Amber Wallace who discusses in depth about diabetes. Now, I've had diabetes in my family, uh, in my immediate family, but I've never really understood that it's more than just insulin and having to take food in when you need it because your blood sugar drops or it rises. There's so much more to think about, and it's potentially a life-or-death situation. And unless you're living it, you don't really understand how tuned in you need to be to every little tiny bit of your life to make sure that you stay alive. Listening to Amber talking about it so explicitly gave me a really great insight into just how precious it is to understand and take responsibility for your conditions and your diagnoses when it comes to something so crucial like keeping your blood sugar. People have lost limbs and their eyesight as well. So it's pretty significant and she goes through it in great detail. So stay tuned, have a listen. If you know people who have diabetes, it's great to know this information. Or if you yourself are dealing with diabetes, you may be able to really comprehend what Amber talks so explicitly about. It's a really informative podcast. Hope you like it. Welcome to Love Your Diagnosis, and today I have on the show Amber Wallace, who is talking about a very, very interesting topic that is very misrepresented, very misunderstood. I personally didn't know that much about it before I went and researched a little bit about it, but we are talking about diabetes. Why don't you just start off by just saying so what you've been diagnosed with, which is type 1 diabetes, how long ago, and just a brief, a brief, brief description of how that affects you? Okay, so I was diagnosed, I think it would be close to 13, 14 years ago now. It affects me, so it affects, it basically affects every part of your body and your function with day-to-day life. So every day I'm having to have injections um, given to myself, which is always fun. Five, six injections a day, every day, or else, if not, my blood sugars go off 
the charts, they go real high. So I don't have anything that's naturally stopping my sugar levels from going off the charts. So my insulin is broken simply in my pancreas. Okay, so let's take it back a notch for people that kind of don't understand it. What's the purpose of insulin in your body? So when you eat a shit a shit ton of sugar, your body will naturally go in and use that sugar um, where it needs to go. So your pancreas is in charge of breaking that sugar down and turning it into energy for you. And also as a normal human being, their sugar levels will sit between four and eight every day, all day. And for a person to have a, what they call a sugar spike, their levels might go up to say eight and then it will drop back down and your body's kicked in and it's doing its job. For me, however, we'll eat the exact same meal. My sugar levels will skyrocket into the 18s, 20s, and then I feel atrociously sick. Things like you get like vertigo, you need to go to the toilet a lot, severe dehydration, memory fog. And we quite, if we're having a bad episode, we'll be quite often thought that we're drunk. So, because we also let off this high sweaty odor and people will mistake us for being drunk when actually we probably need to go to hospital and get insulin and be looked after. Right. So 14 years ago, so how old are you now? Uh, I'll be 40 in a month. Congratulations. It's a fucking great age. Even with diabetes, I imagine. I'm nearly 50. I'm hoping that having epilepsy and being 50 is going to be the best decade, you know, so hopefully diabetes and 40s rock it. So 14 years ago, you were how old? 32. Oh, shit, 22. No, I was 28 when I was diagnosed. 28. Okay. Oh, you sat in return. Right? Right. So just a little brief history of you, I suppose. What was your life like at the time? Were you out partying? Were you just kind of living a pretty unhealthy life diet-wise? Were you just, you know, sleeping with all the wrong people and, you know, a bit debaucherous? Or were you like healthy and sporty and... I was definitely way more on the debauchous side. Ironically, I was studying to be a pastry chef and they work with a lot of sugar. So I went undiagnosed for about three months beforehand, but I did notice all these things were happening. But I just thought it was from the debauchous lifestyle and paid no attention. Drinking a lot, like all the things that would have, that would have increased your blood sugar? Like the whole lead up to it was really funny or not funny and funny. I had noticed the weight was dropping and I was noticing that my intake of like water, Coca-Cola, anything with high sugar, I would be smashing back maybe six liters of Coke a day sort of thing, um, just craving, craving, craving. And then I went off and did a Vipassana course during all this. Oh. Good on you. That's my scariest thing that to think of. Well done. Sorry, go on. So beforehand, I wasn't feeling the best. And then I went to Vipassana. And then by day six, all my, so I was peeing a lot, like a lot. And so that had settled down. Everybody else in Vipassana was miserable. And I was filled with so much joy and happiness. And I found that weird. So on day six, I decided I was going to leave. So I rung my cousin. I think I would like to say I take out the record for peeing 
on the motorway from Sydney to Melbourne the most. <laughs> uh, there and back. you got to be good at something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we went off to Melbourne, had a bender, and then came back from Melbourne and probably within that week, I reckon I dropped like five or six kilos. From all the peeing. From all the peeing. And that's when I was starting to get really sick. And friends were like, you should go to a doctor. So finally, I woke up one morning and I was like, okay, something's up. I went to the doctor. He said, you're not leaving here with an ambulance and you're going to hospital because you're a diabetic. So for me, the funniest part of it was I got put into this ambulance and the, the ambulance driver, he had a his phone on him and the ringtone was, you know, that from that movie, what's the guy with the knife at the door? Like, eh, 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 eh. Oh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger yeah. soundtrack on his phone. So I'm lying there like off my chops and with the sound. And I'm like, dude, you need to change that ringtone. You're going to set somebody off. So yeah, got put into hospital. Blood sugars were off the charts. I was, severely malnourished and dehydrated and they reckon probably I had maybe another day or so in me before that was it I was carcass wow yeah so I'd gone from weighing somewhere around 80 kilos to dropping down to 52 kilos in over a few months and you weren't concerned I mean was it a case of I know in my story there was a lot of denial I didn't want to know what it was did that cross your mind that something wasn't right, but you just didn't want to investigate it because you were a bit afraid, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like one of the girl, one of my friends before, the day before, she was like, you could have diabetes or you could have this. And it was the first thing she mentioned. I'm like, no way. Yeah. But I guess I was in a, in a bit of denial. I was enjoying losing weight, you know, like, as you do. I think the night before is funny – I ate so much McDonald's and then milkshakes. I was so, so hungry, but then I ended up vomiting it because I was eating too much to actually fit in my body. But because I was severely dehydrated, malnourished, my body wasn't taking on anything. I was basically starving myself. So tell me you were diagnosed and they basically, they called it right away, right? They knew exactly what it was. How did that make you feel at that moment when you found that out did you know anything about diabetes and if not how did that make you feel hearing that I had a friend for when I was a kid who was a diabetic so I just knew I needed injections every day but I didn't know too much more than that so I got diagnosed and I was pretty cool with the whole diagnosis and everything and then they actually sent a mental um, health nurse in and they sat down and they're like look we don't think you understand the complete severity of the situation you're in you seemed a bit too happy I was like no no I understand I said my happiness or my lack of I don't know concern or worry comes from the fact that I had a terminally ill brother at the time who was never meant to grow up was never meant to live was never meant to do all of these things but he did it and he conquered so much and traveled the world and was a pretty well-known chef and all of this stuff. So I kind of had him on my mind thinking, well, if my brother can live his life, then I'll be fine. And one day there'll be a cure. Then she was like, oh, wow, we've never had that sort of response or understanding. I'm like, well, that's just the life I've lived. Wow. So you just, you just totally accepted it from denial. You just went to acceptance. And then what was the prognosis for you, like leaving the hospital? I think it was really quite blasé. They just it was basically for every 15 grams of carbs you eat, you need 1 unit of insulin. 
and just eat healthy, eat a, you know, live a healthy lifestyle. I can still eat what everybody else eats. I can still do what everybody else does. But it's this really fun game of pain is pleasure. So if I want to eat a big bit of chocolate, then I've got to go through some pain and inject myself. Does it hurt to inject? Yeah, it it never used to, but because so I've been in say what's the math on that, you know, like 14 years, 5 times a day injections, your skin starts getting scar tissue, so you've got to move the injections around. Yeah, it definitely hurts probably 80% of the time whether or not that's the insulin not going into your skin properly and it makes a bubble and you've got to massage it out or you're using um a blunt needle cuz you don't have to change your needles every time. Or, yeah, the needle just won't go in because your skin's too tough. So there's heaps of those. It's like it's on par with a bee sting 90% of the time. So is the five times a day regardless of what you eat? That's just upkeeping what you need to not die? No. So there's there's one, uh, your slow-acting insulin, which you have once a day. Some people will have it twice depending on how their body is. And then it's every time you eat or drink something that has carbohydrates in it. So if you don't, if you have a really relatively carb, sugar-free day, you don't, you won't have to inject as often. Is that what you're saying? Yep. But generally everything, you know, pretty much everything has carbs in it, unless you want to go on a full keto diet, but then you're starting to play with your your keto acidus, which for us is quite bad. I don't have a great understanding of the keto side of it. But I know if our sugar levels, if we go too high, maybe we get high ketoacidus, which is something to do with your pee. And that's can, if you get ketoacidus, you end up in hospital. I've never had it, or I might have had it and never gone to hospital for it. But that's something I find different countries pay attention to different sort of ways to manage. So in America, they're really big on this keto thing. In Australia and in New Zealand, not so much. I've noticed it like we don't we're not asked to test as much for that sort of thing. Yeah. Were there any other drugs that they put you on or is insulin your main? Um, Insulin's it. So I'm on two different types, my slow insulin, which I have every morning, and then my fast insulin, which I have, yeah, every time I eat, have coffee. And then you've got to figure out how many carbs you've eaten and then figure out the ratio of insulin you'd have to the carbs. Because also what happens, it's this fine magical line if you have too much insulin and you start crashing and your sugar level goes down you've probably got about 20 minutes before you're either in a coma or you're dead so it's it's you just can never get a break can you like as in like you can't have a a break from always constantly thinking about the balance would I be safe to say that yeah and so it's not also what people also the big thing that people don't understand is how much uh, glucose in our system affects every part of our body. For example, we've got glucose in our eyes. So if my sugars are too high or too low, I'll either go real short-sighted or far-sighted. So my eyesight goes a bit whack if my sugar levels are off. If they're too high, too low, you know, our brain uses glucose for brain function. So if my sugar levels are out, my brain doesn't work properly. Is it genetic in your, is it in your family? I found out, I think a great auntie might have had diabetes before they had insulin, so she died when she was a baby. Other than that, no, there's not a great big thing of it. 
So they say diabetes comes from like on the spiritual realm, a lot of anger, a lot of fear, things like that. So for me, I wonder if it was all the stress I was going through beforehand, being a single mom and raising a child and just dealing with life that broke me. But I was also getting a few of the symptoms when I was pregnant. So gastral um, diabetes, but that wasn't picked up on. So I don't feel it's tested enough or well enough. Like if you think you're diabetic, you go off, you get a blood test. They will give you like a percentage or an average of the last three months of what your sugar levels are. So they could still be, you know, in range, but it's not showing you the spikes of your body trying to break down the sugar because we have such a high sugar diet nowadays. Well, that leads me to ask you this because part of how this podcast works is that uh, I, you know, I, I speak with people about what they were diagnosed with and we talk about the medical side of things, which is what we just did. Is there anything on the alternative side of managing and treating the diabetes that helps you not take as much insulin or is diabetes something that really uh, well, diet is obviously a massive one, but is there anything else that you've done to try and adjust your insulin level or your glucose levels in the more natural realm? Yeah, so right at the beginning, for the first, you know, say five, six years or so, I started going to the gym and just really trying to eat healthy, fully cut back on processed food. I moved up to Byron and then really got into raw vegan food for a bit. And just tried, yeah, almost every magic potion under the sun. You know, there's no cure for it. And then so I kind of went, oh, bugger this. I'm just going to live happily ever after anyway. Because there's this sort of this fine balance, you know, of the the stress of the disease itself and then the stress of you trying to wrap it up in a neat little basket and deal with it. So if you're going to be like real tight with your eating and your eating habits well you can't really eat out because you don't know what carbs are in foods they add a lot of sugar there's a lot of you know processed foods there's the msg added there's so many things so boom straight away you're not eating out then boom you've got to start going organic and eating whole foods and not buying anything basically from the supermarket so it it becomes this really tight regime that starts really affecting kind of your social life and who you can hang out with and you know, you rock up to a barbecue and everyone's just brought the cheap processed stuff from the supermarket or whatever, and you're like, oh, well, I can't really eat any of that. What methods have you developed then to be able to still have a social life and go to all these things, but also be mindful about what you need to be mindful of? I mean, like I was saying, I was studying to be a chef. So with all of that, my chef skills, you know, kept on climbing and I definitely stayed away from pastry chefing, which still breaks my heart and then I just basically got into eating really healthy so most of the time now people want my cooking over any other thing else so I have a little cafe and people come and eat there what's it called is it still you still got it yeah Amber's Kitchen so you've you've kind of made something fabulous out of your situation and and educating people on how to eat healthy which is always bonus I think the biggest thing that kind of got me over this kind of living in fear with my disease sort of thing was I actually went, you get to this breaking point where you're kind of like, you know what, just stuff it all, fuck it, boom, done. I'm sick of it. I'm going to live my life. Is there a story that you can kind of tell that 
was the turning point for you? So I ended up going traveling through Asia with everyone going, oh, you can't travel, you can't do this. So I'm basically not allowed to live alone, not allowed to live out of like an, close enough, a 20 minute, you know, thing of a hospital or whatever. But instead, no, I went traveling with my daughter through Asia for four and a half months and survived and had no dramas and no hoo-ha or anything. So for me, that really just made me question, like, what are you so afraid of or panicky of? Like, you can actually do these things. I think that's with with chronic illnesses as well, that you do always think, you're always needing to think with epilepsy as well. It's, It's a constant thinking game and feeling you can't do this because of that and then also trying to challenge and push yourself that you can do it. I don't know about you, but I I used to hide it uh just because of embarrassment. So, but but traveling's a whole different story. I remember befriending a girl when I went traveling uh to Mexico and just letting her know and she just came everywhere. She just ended up being my magic fairy and yeah, I had a few seizures in a few hostels because I was drinking too much and she was just always there. So I'd like to bust a few myths about diabetes, just a couple, if you can share with us. What do you think a lot of people think about diabetes that actually isn't true? The whole thing of, so, ah, so you can't eat sugar. What are you doing eating that? You can't eat sugar. Are you allowed to eat that? Do they sound like that when they say it? Yeah, but mostly. (laughs) The good old Aussies. Yeah, that's probably a big one in the sense of I can still eat whatever I like I just have to make sure I have the right amount of insulin. However, again, having said that, I feel like over the years, because it has, it's never going to get better and it's always going to slowly get worse. So there's certain things I just choose not to eat because I know it's going to just catapult me and I will feel like shit afterwards. Not complete shit. People won't notice. They won't physically see that I'm off or whatever. So things like fish and chips and pizzas and KFC, I can't go near anymore. Uh, McDonald's. I don't think you're really missing out on much, to be honest. No, I found a much better fried chicken place because Korean, so good. Yeah, yeah. You got to understand, this is a very small town in New Zealand. We have now two Korean restaurants. Delicious. They do. They do fried chicken. Fuck Colonel Sanders. Yeah, things like drinking. You can have a couple of drinks, but you're gonna feel even worse the next day. So my our tolerance to alcohol is really low. So it only takes one or two and we get drunk real quick. And then that's us and we're good. And then we're ready to go home, go to bed. And then we always need to eat heaps when we're, when we're drinking because also people don't understand like alcohol actually stops your body from breaking down carbohydrates. So if you're really smashed and you, then you get that two o'clock kebab urge. That's your body telling you that you've got no carbs and you need to be eating something for this alcohol to, yeah, do its thing. I've eaten many a late night kebab over my years. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you love your diagnosis? It's definitely made me appreciate a lot more. I've been thinking about that a lot since like lining up to do this going, you know, because there's bad days and good days. It's like, I really, some I don't love it. However, I do love it in the sense of what it's taught me and how it's it's made me just kind of stop and learn to rest and learn to look after myself and take time. Saved your life by the sound of it. Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah. Being diagnosed with something chronic is always, in my opinion, like a second chance of life. You can choose to roll with it. You can choose to find, you know, you've got so many choices. I mean, and that's the one thing that people forget. And this is why part of why I'm doing the podcast too, is that when you walk out into the doctor's um, office, one person without a diagnosis and you walk out with a diagnosis, that doesn't mean that you're a different person and that that doctor knows more than you. It just means that you've got the opportunity now to not outsource your disease to someone or your illness, but work with that person to manage and treat it, not necessarily hand over the reins. You can't actually hand over the reins even though you want to. I think that's probably one of the worst things you can do because you know your body more than a doctor's do. And that's I think in some sense that's the one thing I do come head to head with them on is because they want me to live in this certain regime. And it's like, well, I've never actually eaten breakfast or I've never done it this way. So I don't want to change it. So it's taken me a good amount of time to find a doctor that I'm happy with who actually gives me praise instead of going, oh, well, you haven't checked your blood sugars. So the other thing that injections hurt, yes, but testing your blood sugar level, that's way, way sore. So I've got like, it's a sensor that on my arm and then you can like scan it with your phone and it will tell you what your blood sugars are if you need insulin or you don't need insulin. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we've got some amazing technology. You're charged 100 bucks a pop for one of these. It lasts you two weeks. That's if it does last you two weeks. It usually falls off during its sweat and just life and stuff. Gee, that's is that is that subsidised by the government? And the insulin, is it expensive? In New Zealand, we're lucky like Australia. It is definitely subsidised. So I pay, I think, maybe $5 a prescription or something. So, yeah, I'm really grateful. In America, it's not subsidized, and they're paying over 100 bucks a vial, which may last you a week. Like, people are dropping like flies in Australia and America because they they just can't afford. Yeah, that's really sad. Plus, their whole concept about food and eating is just so shit that, you know, um, you know, obesity has kind of probably led to to a lot of them having that. I mean, you know, that's just I can't quote anything, and I didn't get that from a PubMed. So, um, my last question to you is: If there are people going through what you've been through, have you got any tips or any guidance that you can offer people that are living the same kind of thing that you are with your diagnosis? Choose to live. And I mean, I don't, you might want to edit it out, but point blankly is it's kind of just like fuck all that shit off, fuck off all of the negative to it and just get out the door and live while you can. I know in some cases it is relentlessly hard because this is, you know, it's the beginning of other diseases that we get as well and other autoimmune things. So for me to sit there and go, oh, yeah, no, just get out the door. For some people, they literally can't get out the door because it's already taken their legs or it's taken our eyesight or our hands or all of these things. But it's just try not to live with the fear of it. Beautiful, because even if you have lost a leg or, or an eye or something else, you've, you're still here for a reason. And I think that's a really good advice. Don't live in the fear yeah. of it. Um, and and rise above and you've got choices. I mean, yeah. you can choice. That's the New Zealand. You've got choices. 
So yeah. that's fantastic. Thank you so much um, for sharing your story. It's really important. I'm going to put the links up in the podcast notes that you sent to me because they're quite funny. They're quite funny little skits. Yeah, thanks again and for being brave and telling your story and going through your story because to be able to tell the story, you have to actually live it. And if you only had one day left basically before they took you to hospital well you're obviously here for a reason so lovely to dissect that into such a little uh, short amount of time no problems yeah and um i will definitely check in with you to see how you're doing thanks <laughs> no prop thank you too if you would like to donate to the, the running of this podcast and you can afford a few little bucks a month or whatever it is that you can afford to keep the show going without ads please hit the PayPal button and if you've got a few loose coins that would really mean a lot to me and other people who are listening to this podcast and getting seeds of inspiration. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that just means more people will know about it. If you've got a story that you want to share, that you've had success with and that you've researched and found some some joy and gold in your own diagnosis, please hit me up. I'm always happy to share anyone's story. The main takeaway message in these podcasts is get second opinions, find a doctor that you really resonate with and research the shit out of what you're going on. Get back in the driver's seat of your health, everyone. You do not need to take one person's opinion about the rest of your life and how to live it. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Lainey Godiva.